to resist. Yes. Well, this is where things get uh, pretty nasty. Violent extremist groups linked to the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have become a major security concern in the central Sahel area of West Africa. In the eye of the Stam al-Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger Republic, particularly the tri-border region between these countries. Their presence has amplified threats to civilians which has led to the deaths of thousands of people and the displacement of many more. The situation in the volatile region is further complicated by the political crisis in some of the countries, in addition to power governance and livelihood opportunities. How much of the security trends and the difficult socio-economic conditions of the people is being exploited by extremist groups? What's the relationship between frontline communities and those groups? Hello, welcome to The Crisis Room, a podcast from Human Angle. I'm Hawasala Abakar and I'm here with my colleague Murchala Abdullahi. In this podcast, we look at crisis trends across the country and answer the tough questions around them. This week, we're here with a guest, Ivan Gishawa, a senior lecturer at the University of Kent and one of the authors of the recent published study on the interactions between civilians and jihadists in Mali and Niger. Good day, Ivan. Welcome to the Crisis Room. Can you tell us more about what's happening currently in the Sahel region? Our listeners will also want to understand the region itself and the actors. Thank you very much for, um, for having me. I'm really, really honored to uh, be with you today. And um, I'm a great fan of um, everything you publish. So um, um, I have like two big reasons to be happy today, um, to be among people uh, whose work I really, really admire. So this report is based on surveys that have been conducted in uh, the central Sahel in Niger, uh, in the western part of the country, in the Tilaberi region, and in central Mali. And the reason or the main motive behind this uh, report is to figure out in a way the kind of social contract that may prevail in places where the jihadists are in fact the um, strongest uh political and uh, military force. That does not mean that the state has completely disappeared, but the jihadists are strong enough to impose their will on the population. So we really wanted to explore how civilians react, respond to these situations, and um, to see whether some sort of stable pact uh, can be established between the jihadists who we see very much as political actors and uh, the civilians and their representatives. Now, the reason why we started this research is because, of course, the jihadist movements have entrenched in the central Sahel. And this has started in, um, oh, in fact, a long time ago. But you may consider 2012 the main date for the... Um, expansion of uh, jihadist groups. Uh, 2012 is when the um, separatist movements from northern Mali um, started um, a rebellion. They eventually kicked out the states from most of its uh, strongholds in northern Mali. Now, ironically, these separatist movements somehow lost steam 
and were eventually crowded out by jihadists. And for about a year, jihadist groups took control of northern Mali. Uh, after one year, they were um, driven out by the French intervention in 2013. The French intervention helped um, the Malian forces reconquer the main urban centers but the jihadists uh, didn't disappear completely. They somehow entrenched in rural areas and um, they haven't disappeared since then. And uh, they have even expanded their influence. They are now extremely influential in Burkina Faso and in uh, Niger. And of course, now uh, more lately, uh, in the northern parts of the uh, coastal countries. So the report was based on the following idea. How do we explain this expansion? And the main hypothesis was, well, in fact, it's not just the military might that allows jihadist groups to gain so much influence and territorial control. It's also their capacity to deal with local situations and perhaps negotiate some form of uh, settlement with civilians. So this is the background of the report, basically. The situation in the region seems to be quite volatile. How much of the political, social and economic problems enable this crisis? Yeah, that's one of the big debates around the expansion of jihadism, whether the causes have to do with the uh, local political economy or whether the causes are religious or whether the causes are uh, political. Well, in fact, there's no single explanation for the expansion of the jihadist movements. In the case of central Mali, for example, there has been plenty of works already showing how the pastoralist economy is central to um, the expansion of uh, jihadist movements in the sense that you had all sorts of um, dynamics in the post-colonial era <laughs> um, that somehow uh, privileged uh, sedentary groups at the expense of uh, pastoralist uh, communities and now uh, the jihadists uh, are somehow offering an opportunity to certain categories of people who have been aggrieved by these modes of uh, governance to take a revenge against uh, state actors who they see as their oppressors and the reasons for their marginalization. So that is something that is happening in central Mali. But you need also to be more nuanced, more careful and look really at the special circumstances um, of like every place where uh, eventually jihadist groups entrenched. So pastoralism and um, issues around pastoralism, access to land might be a very, very powerful driver for jihadist expansion in central Mali, but perhaps um, at the border between Mali and Niger, the situation is um, slightly different. Uh, it uh, may have to do with tensions among pastoralist groups. It may have to do with uh, past conflicts uh, that were essentially communal conflicts that uh, have not been addressed uh, comprehensively. So, and again, the jihadists are very good sociologists. That's a claim that we make. They read 
the social environment very, very well, and they are able to activate the right language so that some communities at least, or some segments of certain aggrieved communities, eventually join their ranks. Now, they are also, of course, using coercion and violence. Huh? Uh, we, we need to be very clear about this. It's not just through seduction that the groups manage to gain territory. It's also through violence. And in the case of Niger, the uh, Islamic State, the, the local branch of the Islamic State, is using violence in, in a way that is um, very extreme Uh, and that literally does not uh, leave much choice to uh, the populations because the state is not there to um, permanently protect the populations. So also the state presence is too thin, is too weak, and is not permanent enough, uh, which means that most of the day, most of the week, in fact, the um, populations are immediately confronted with the jihadist presence. They don't see the state very often. So that means that the jihadists have a sort of upper hand. They can make populations do what they want them to do. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And you kind of like moved into some of the questions I had for you. Uh, so you actually mirrored a lot in terms of what's happening in the Sahel. And I like the fact that you also really explained uh, the history of the situation, especially more in terms of when we were looking at uh, when the Tory rebellion happened uh, and a lot, huge chunk of Mali fell and then the, the French had to come in and support uh, to claim some of these areas. Then we've also seen what happened between the Tories and the other uh, groups, the jihadist group in which they uh, were in bed with and then things happened along the way. Uh, and then successors of some of the groups that became the JNIM and also the Islamic State. Um, then also we You've seen changes in terms of security structure of uh, the French having to pull out from Mali. Uh, but I think for me, really an interesting thing that you mentioned was in terms of the socialist tendency, like uh, the, the ability of the uh, jihadists to uh, understand and play with the local population. And so, and it's something that your research really looked at what's the nature of this relationship between the local population, because we're taking something around the pastoralists and how that is intertwined with what the, the problem in the region. So I just want to get more in terms of what the nature of the relationship between the local population and these uh, jihadist groups. Thank you, yes. So I will focus on the case of central Mali because the case of, um, Western Niger and the border between Niger and Mali, where the Islamic State operates, is slightly different. It's a sort of extreme case where it's essentially violence that is used to make populations comply. So that's, in fact, the finding of the report that the nature of the contract that exists between the jihadists and the civilians in the western part of Niger is in fact a very, very weak contract. We wanted to operationalize this idea by looking specifically at the um, Islamic tax that um, jihadists call like the zakat, but in fact, um, Islamic uh, um, clerics like might contest the use of the word zakat for what the jihadists are doing in the area because zakat, of course, is supposed to be a redistributive mechanism. But in the case of um, Western Niger, the jihadists come, they ask villages, um, 
give us like this amount of cows, uh, and they eventually extract riches, uh, wealth from the population, but the wealth never goes back. It's never distributed to the poor. Whereas in central Mali, the zakat, or what the jihadists call the zakat, is eventually returned to the populations or to the poor segments of the populations in a fairly codified way. Uh, and so even though we have one word, zakat, in the case of, or in the two cases, like the word designates two very different realities, right? So in the case of central Mali, there is a sort of minimal um, political agreement or social contract built around the zakat because there is some redistribution toward the poor um, built around the delivery of certain uh, services in the form of uh, the judiciary for example so the jihadist would uh, adjudicate conflicts uh, in particular land conflicts between um, pastoralists and farmers or among pastoralists uh, and then uh, there's uh, another dimension which we um, highlight in the report. It's how marriage uh, and uh, is 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 being handled. Um, we noticed, uh, and other um, scholars have also made the same observation, that for example in central Mali, the dowry, like what uh, families pay for uh, marrying their uh, kids, uh, has been capped. Right, so that um, young people uh, have greater chance to get married with each other, and so it's a sort of democratization of marriage that the jihadists have uh, offered. Of course, they are also reconfiguring, reconfiguring gender relationships. I mean, there are all sorts of aspects of life that make the jihadist rule relatively accountable and in some occasions even more um, legitimate than what the state is offering. And so uh, let me just add one little thing, is that the value of um, jihadist order in the eyes of the population is not established necessarily on the basis of the what the jihadists offer intrinsically. It's based on the comparison between what the jihadists offer and what the state offer. And this comparative element is absolutely essential because even in situations where people don't necessarily love the jihadist presence, you can still find situations where people prefer the jihadist to what the state is doing because the state has a reputation of being a very extractive and predatory actor. A lot of what the research findings in terms of what's happening in Central Mali are things that you can say, oh, it's almost similar to, to the Lake Chad, or it's almost similar to what we have in the Mozambique, those kind of places. So it's kind of looked like, oh, when the state is failing, uh, jihadists then kind of step in to do some of the things that the state do, cannot or is not doing. And again, the jihadists trying to manipulate the local economy. And what, what I mean by local economy, both the people and the natural resources that they were in terms of land, water, uh, access to these things, as we also see in the Lake Chad Basin, uh, provision of services, like even judiciary, uh, adjudication of matters uh, that affect the lives of people. So this, uh, I think for me, it's kind of like brings a lot of insight into 
what can be done but i think how we'll be asking that question later but my question is so when you look at the social contract uh it's not like yeah it may be like some sort of soft approach a lot but what happens when people try to resist to resist yes well this is where things get uh, pretty nasty in fact and that's another uh, big element of the um, report when some consistent resistance is happening then we see jihadists like unleashing atrocious forms of violence and one form of violence that has become almost systematic across all the cases that we have reviewed is the technique of the siege it's like literally starvation using starvation as a weapon of war so they organize blockades of villages they don't let anyone enter or go out which means eventually like no more economic activities are happening and that can last for months and months and months and this is very uh, much uh, associated often with targeted killings individuals who are considered informants of the state or uh, yeah enemy uh, within the community are also systematically eliminated and we also had uh, reports or testimonies about uh, killings of cattle for example like and i mean there have been like um, viral videos circulating that we have seen uh, where for example one village that had started a militia a self defense militia um had seen like not just the uh, militiamen like uh, eliminated like physically but also all the horses of the village uh killed so that's the um probably the most harrowing aspect in the sense that the jihadists come they approach villages uh they tell them well you have to uh, comply with the sharia law uh, men have to grow their beard etc they deliver their sort of uh, playbook yeah. if populations don't accept this then that can turn like very very nasty very very quickly and this is where the state has a major role to play because sometimes the state lets civilians believe that they can receive assistance if they resist but if the state's promise is not credible you could still see some resistance emerging people being slaughtered and state assistance like eventually never uh, come and so this is where the state should be very very cautious with the kind of hopes that it gives to the population who may have uh, some willingness to respond we haven't found a situation where the resistance in fact was um strong enough to confront the jihadists credibly we only have like absolutely tragic stories of populations that started a militia a self defense group and that were eventually completely crushed and slaughtered you just highlighted something important when people want to resist and when the authorities gives the signal that when you resist we'll be there for you the authorities need to be there for them 
From this conversation, it is clear that a military and non-military approach is needed in order to address this problem. What are your recommendations for peace building as you found out in the study? That's an excellent question. And this is a tr tricky one uh, that uh, generally like scholars, uh, academics like don't like <laughs> because we're good at uh, um, raising critiques, uh, but we're probably less good at um, designing uh, viable um, policy recommendations. What we try to do in the report is that we, we consider that uh, some very limited ambitions uh, should be considered. And one of them being the protection of civilians. So we, we basically um, suggest what you just said, Awa, that um, a range of military and non-military actions uh, might be needed but with a sort of principle in mind, which is do no harm, which is a very classic uh, principle in the fields of uh, yeah, development, uh, counterinsurgency, sure. whatever. Uh, but yeah, let's make sure that whatever we do is not going to uh, cause more harm uh, to populations. And I can give you uh, an example, an illustration of this point, uh, which is based on the testimony uh, of uh, one or of the, the, the people that have been interviewed as part of this research. And in fact, I need to mention that the report is full of quotes, like we really wanted to have many, many quotes in this um, report. And this person says, um, look, we want the state back, but if it's just a patrol here and there, we, we prefer not to have the state at all because what happens if the state comes, visits the village, asks questions to uh, villagers, and then leaves, like the next day, everyone who uh, was uh, seen talking to uh, the military patrol is going to uh, be intro into trouble, uh, kidnapped, sometimes killed, uh, tortured. So uh, that's the, the big, I think, conundrum and um, difficult equation for the state. If the state wants to come back, it needs to be back with credible force and also with a credible political agenda, political project for the populations. Because of course, all of what is happening does not come from nowhere, right? Um, it's built on grievances, anger, uh, and and it's built on decades of um, misgovernance by uh, state actors. Thank you for sharing these important insights with us, and we look forward to having you again. This is an episode of Human Angle Crisis Room. Join us in two weeks for another episode. 